Support for the show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power the collaboration needed for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or two million, Atlassian software is built to help keep you connected and moving together as one. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Episode 111, the atomic number for rent kenium. I'm pretty sure that's the brand of testosterone I'm on. I have more hormones right now than a cow owned by Monsanto. The prof? Strong like bull. Go, go, go! Welcome to the 111th episode of the Prof G Pod. 111, 111. There's got to be something weird about that, right? It's got to be something, I don't know. Does that mean Lucifer is going to show up at the middle of our break? And when we have an ad from ZipRecruiter, the Dark Knight is going to show up. Anyways, in today's episode, we speak with Meredith Broussard, a data journalist, associate professor at New York University. Colleague, a colleague. Everyone thinks we hang out and give each other pens and we're on a lawn and joking and hanging out in our cardigans. I know almost nobody at NYU. Literally, I have two or three friends that I go out Essentially, the other profs that drink a lot. That's kind of my posse. Anyways, uh, Professor Broussard is the author of Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World. I think that's a little cynical. I think she should be more optimistic. The glass is half full, Professor. We discussed with Meredith the state of play regarding AI, AI bias, and ethical uses of AI. All right, all right. What is happening? We're seeing yet another example of big tech wielding its power to play hardball with the little guys. Google is removing YouTube from Roku after the two companies were unable to reach an agreement on how the app would continue to operate on the platform. So what happened? According to Roku, Google insists that when Roku users search for something on the platform, YouTube results must be featured first, even if they are not the most relevant. Hmm. Google used to take you to the right place. Now they take you to a place they can further monetize. A little ironic, Google's search company trying to manipulate someone else's search results. Think about how strange this is. 93% of our queries where we go for information. And by the way, you trust Google more than any rabbi, priest, scholar, or any God you pray to, in my view. And one company gets to decide the algorithms, which are very opaque, uh, what those answers should be 93% of the time. What could go wrong? Roku also claims that Google demands that Roku provide it with data about its customers, data that Google doesn't require from other partners. Well, Google smell you. The two companies have been negotiating since April, but it sounds like those negotiations have fallen apart. Google's statement is, Roku has once again chosen to make unproductive and baseless claims rather than try to work constructively with us. Oh, poor fucking you, Google. Oh, you're the victim here. You're the victim. 93% share of a $150 billion market. 
No one has ever sustained that before. No one has ever had that sort of monopoly power, which ultimately leads to abuse. What is some of that abuse? What is the sunlight, which is piercing through Facebook's bullshit, like a four-year-old or an eight-year-old, I should say, with a magnifying glass burning ants? That's what's going on now at Facebook. Literally, they all of the stuff coming about Facebook is creating so much heat, so much sunshine, that eventually some of that light is going to start to illuminate the other platform that is doing a ton of damage here. Talk about anti-competitive damage. You're talking about Google's ad network with both a buyer, seller, and a market maker, which makes no fucking sense. But in terms of actual harm to our society, you know who's next? YouTube. Uh, Extremist groups being suggested to young boys. And Susan Wojcicki is the equivalent of Sheryl Sandberg, but better. Uh, She has been more effective. Uh, She creates a likability shield. And I think that the next kind of if you will, dime to drop is going to be on YouTube. And some reporting has shown that in YouTube meetings, and this is going to sound eerily reminiscent of Facebook, they always opt for free speech. Yeah, because they're just such warriors for the First Amendment, aren't they, those people at YouTube? And they always, they come up with a committee, they come up with a task force, they do almost nothing, pretend to do something, and delay and obfuscate under the auspices of Section 230 or First Amendment uh, some of the damage or a lot of the damage uh, they have done. Anyways, back to Roku and Google. Google claims it's baseless. Baseless? Really, Google? According to a 2019 email that was released to CNBC, Google did, in fact, require special treatment. The email from a Google executive to Roku reads, open quote, YouTube position, a dedicated shelf for YouTube search results is a must, close quote. And since Roku won't surrender to Google's clear abuse of power, no new Roku customers will have access to YouTube or YouTube TV beginning on December 9th. That's new Roku customers, current users with access to the YouTube apps won't be affected. So it doesn't have monopoly power. The question is, does it have so much power that they can abuse that power? Uh, the kind of the Brandeisian antitrust is if you have market power and you can abuse it to the point and create non-market or non-competitive conditions, that's abuse of power. And I believe YouTube and definitely Google crossed that threshold a long time ago. A couple other things in the news I found really interesting. Uh, Yesterday, I spoke to Roger McNamee and he pointed me to the work of Shoshana Zuboff and uh, came up with this concept I found just fascinating. I was going on Anderson Cooper last night to talk about Facebook, specifically uh, Francis Haugen's testimony, the kind of the whistleblower case and all of these all of these sort of drip, drip, drip things that keep coming out about Facebook that are both shocking but not surprising. A couple of things struck me. One, essentially, uh, Ms. Haugen has big tech to big tech. And that is the rollout here has been thoughtful, meticulous, planned, coordinated. And that is you have a branded series of investigative journalist pieces all called the Facebook papers. You have a national TV rollout. You have coordination among different press groups. And Facebook seems to be absolutely horrified that someone would bring the same discipline and resources to this battle that they've been bringing for a long time. For a long time, people who have been um, highlighting the ills of social media have been fighting panzer tanks on horseback. And uh, all of a sudden, it feels like we're finally starting to fight on panzer tanks. It's also what was fascinating about Shoshana Zuboff's work that Roger pointed out to me, that at some point, When an individual loses their autonomy, that's when the law needs to step in. So we have child labor laws because it's generally accepted that children don't have their own autonomy over when and where they can work and for how much. And so we move in and we enforce laws and create laws. And it got me thinking about uh, the folks uh, in the insurrection, people who are vaccine hesitant, 
people who are trafficked, uh, do these people still have their own autonomy? And when I look at those tapes of the insurrection, I wonder how many of those people generally thought that they were doing the right thing? How many people who have not taken the vaccine, we're about 58% in the US. We should be 78, like some other advanced nations. We have the supply chain. We have access to these vaccines. I mean, this is a gift from God, and yet we are 20% lower than some other nations. Take 20% times 350 million people, that's 70 million, assuming everybody gets it, which a lot of smart people think at some point everybody gets it. 1% mortality rate. And then what people don't talk about a lot is that for every person that dies, there are three or four people with uh, that maintain long-term detrimental health conditions, whether it's cardiological or neurological conditions. So you're talking about 75 million people that probably should have got the vaccine, but I would argue have no autonomy around information. You're saying, well, Scott, you're infantilizing them. I don't know. I think when you have essentially two-thirds of the world's social media um, platforms are controlled by one company, and Americans now get a third to two-thirds of their news from this one source, and these algorithms build a digital corpus of you and then start penetrating your autonomy with misinformation to the extent where it doesn't feel like misinformation. And the result is vaccine hesitancy. I mean, at some point, do you, does your reckless business model begin to breach into the category of criminal intent? And that's what you have to show in a criminal case is intent. And I wonder if at some point when the massive delay in obfuscation, the lying, the ignoring the research, and this business model, which is clearly creating just massive misinformation around some really damaging things, if at some point this breaches into criminal intent. This is a long-winded way of saying that I believe there's going to be antitrust. I believe there's going to be regulation. I now believe there is going to be a perp walk at one or more big tech companies because this is beginning to smell a lot like Christmas if Christmas were criminal. Specifically, the Antitrust case in Texas could be federalized. Why is that important? Because the remedies for antitrust can be criminal. Two, human trafficking on a global basis and ignoring it is in fact a crime. And aiding and abetting an insurrection, when you know an insurrection is being planned on your platform and you continue to serve up algorithms to convince people it's a good idea, uh, that in fact is a crime as well. That's DOJ time, I think. And by the way, everyone, this is where you are. You're like, oh, Scott, you're such an alarmist. You know what? Four years ago, when I wrote the four, um, get ready for the virtue signaling here. And I said, there's something wrong in Mudville here. These companies present a clear and present danger. My publisher and people said, well, it's provocative, but is it really true? Do you really want to say these things? And then three years ago, when I said Mark Zuckerberg was the most dangerous person on the planet, people called me reactionary. People called me, I said I was uh, engaging in clickbait. And now let me say it again. I think there's crimes here. I think we're going to see a perp walk finally. And I think that will be the beginning of the end of big tech as we know it, or the end of the beginning where these companies ultimately morph to a more productive tech ecosystem. We're net gainers from tech. Big tech provides a lot of wonderful things, as does fossil fuels, as does pesticides, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't regulate them. It is time for regulation and also the algebra of deterrence to kick in. And the algebra of deterrence is not in full force here because nobody's gone to jail. No one's even been cuffed. I think that's coming. I think that's coming. Okay, so let's circle this back. Uh, let's come back. Uh, where are you, Scott? Come back to us. Let's circle this back to Roku and Google. All of this news went down about the same time that Senators Amy Klobuchar and Chuck Grassley introduced a bipartisan bill that aims to rein in companies, including Amazon, Apple, and Google, and prevent them from abusing their market power and squashing competition. 
Following the news that Roku called out Google for its unfair business practices, Senator Klobuchar, who has been an absolute champion, gangster, in leading antitrust actions, issued a statement explaining how Roku's claim is exactly why we need new laws to prevent this gatekeeper behavior and wrote the following, open quote, for too long, the big tech platforms have leveraged their power to preference their products and services over those of thousands of smaller online businesses. They have said, just trust us, but experience has shown that we can't rely on these companies to act fairly in the marketplace. I'll go further than that. We can't trust these companies to have any any regard for the commonwealth. They are not concerned with the condition of our soul. They are not there to protect our teenagers. They are there to make money at any cost. And the costs have become too great. We're totally obsessed around antitrust with economic costs. Specifically, does the price, the primary litmus test is the consumer test. And that is the consumer prices go up. It's difficult to apply that test in a marketplace where the products are free, but the non-economic costs we are paying has skyrocketed. What are the economic costs that we pay as parents. I was with a friend of mine this weekend. I went to a concert. I went and saw Rufus DeSole, which made me feel 56 again. Jesus Christ, I am over these music festivals. I'm just too fucking old, let's be honest. doesn't matter how much tea I inject into my system. I just can't deal with big crowds of young people. Although some people did recognize me. And I lit up like a fucking Christmas tree. When people come up to me and interrupt me in the middle of me having a good time to say hi, you know how it makes me feel? You know how it makes me feel, honestly? It's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for saying hi. And if you see me and you recognize me, please come up and say hi. I'm nice. I'm nice. Charming and nice. Well, mostly nice. Anyways, anyways, at the concert, at the concert, I went with another, I went with a friend, this guy named Brent, who is a really thoughtful guy. And he said something that really struck me. He said, he has two kids. His are younger than mine. His are, I think, eight and 11. Mine are 11 and 14. He said, I would rather give my 16-year-old girl, when she's 16, a bottle of Jack car keys, and a shit ton of marijuana than have her on Instagram and Snap. And he said, imagine seeing your full self at 16. And that really struck me. Imagine seeing your full self at the age of 16, 24 by seven. I remember the stupid things I said in class, but I could go home and retreat to the safe place of my cartoons and my friends who didn't see me say something stupid or or say hi to my mom, or, or think about tomorrow was a new day. Every time you're in the way of someone who sees an opportunity to shame you because of wh whatever, the tribal instincts that kick in, especially among young girls, boys bully physically and verbally, girls bully relationally. Do we really want, do we really want our children to be confronted with their, their full selves 24 by seven before the ages of 16, 17, and 18. We've age-gated porn. We've age-gated alcohol. We've age-gated tobacco. Why on earth are we not age-gating the products from a group of mendacious fucks who have figured out a way to program at scale algorithms that elevate terrible content, divisive content that makes us feel bad about ourselves, that encourages us to go to extreme dieting sites, even though we might be five foot four and 95 pounds, that encourages us to engage in groups that are hateful, why would we want, why would we want to trust these organizations with the full self putting up the mirror? They're the ones constructing the mirror that our children get to see 24 by 7. Stay with us. We'll be right back for our conversation with Meredith Broussard to talk about AI, AI bias, and ethical uses of AI. 
Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Welcome back. Here's our conversation with data journalist Meredith Broussard. Professor Broussard, where does this podcast find you? I am in New York City right now. Okay, so uh, let's start with the basics. Can you provide a definition of AI? Ooh, this is a good question. Uh, And my best definition is that AI is math. But most people are kind of unsatisfied with that definition because they expect AI to be like we see in Hollywood. They expect it to be the Terminator and the robot apocalypse and the awesome imaginative stuff. And so Mm -hmm. people are often disappointed when I point out that what's real about AI is that it's very complicated and beautiful math. And what's imaginary about AI is all of the robot apocalypse stuff. But is AI when Netflix says season, you know, episode two is starting in three, two, one? Give us an example. AI is math. It kind of becomes decisions, right? What is, and I'm sincere about this question. I I feel like AI has become this catchphrase for technology meets math meets decisions that are made um, uh, without, uh, uh, you know, adult supervision. Like what? When is something, when does intelligence become artificial, so to speak? And what is mm-hmm. what is real intelligence and what's art- artificial intelligence? Well, let's let's unpack the term AI a little bit. People imagine that AI is something very uh, kind of special, but actually mm-hmm. we're using AI all the time. Mm-hmm. So there's something like 250 different machine learning models that get activated every time you do a Google search. Mm-hmm. Uh, And in my book, Artificial Unintelligence, one of the examples that I give of machine learning is I I give an example that involves the Titanic. So you can take data on the Titanic passengers and you can feed it into the computer and have the computer build a model that predicts who lives and who dies based on the Titanic passenger data. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Right. And if I were an insurance company, I might want to use this model to determine pricing for insurance policies for people who are going on boat trips. Because if you're going on a boat trip and you buy insurance for me and you die, then I have to pay out. But if you're going on a boat trip and you buy insurance for me and you live, then I don't have to pay out. Right. So I, as an insurance company, I would rather give uh, a low-priced policy to somebody who's more likely to live and a high-priced policy to somebody who's more likely to die. Makes total sense, right, from a capitalist perspective. But the thing about the Titanic passenger data is that there is bias embedded in it because the determining factor uh, mathematically as far as who lives and who dies is passenger class. The first-class passengers survived at a higher rate because they got into the lifeboats first. And Mm -hmm. the second- and third-class passengers were locked in their corridors and prevented from getting into the lifeboats. So if we were to use a machine learning model that's based on the Titanic passenger data, we would be replicating a really terrible offense of the past. And we would be charging first-class passengers less for insurance, charging the richer people less for insurance and charging the less wealthy people, the second and third class passengers, more mm-hmm. for insurance. So AI doesn't necessarily make the best decisions all the time. Or the most and, ethical, right? I mean, it, exactly. and, and this kind of leads to my next question, and that is, I've always thought that at the end of the day, <laughs> it, it, behind every algorithm or vehicle of AI, there's an individual who's programming these things. And I, I'm sure there's a world of unintended consequences. But people say Facebook's gotten beyond, the algorithms have taken over, gone beyond their control. And I, I know there's a lot of fear around AI, you know, with the kind of the Starnet movement or whatever, or moment or whatever they call it, Skynet, excuse me. I've always thought at the end of the day, it's an individual somewhere telling the algorithms what to do. Do you, are you on sort of the Elon Musk side of things where AI presents an existential threat to humanity or kind of we're in charge? And like you said, any tool can be used for negative or positive. What, where do you fall on that argument? I am definitely not in the Elon Musk camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that software developers, uh, AI developers are generally pretty well-intentioned. Uh, I don't think any of them are getting up in the morning and saying, I want to go out and oppress people today. Yeah, agreed. But I think that uh, everybody has blind spots. Everybody Mm -hmm. has unconscious bias. You know, Mm -hmm. we're all working to become better people every day, but none of us are perfect. And so when you have a homogeneous group of people like we have in Silicon Valley, they're embedding their own biases in the technology they create. And they have collective blind spots. And so that's how we end up with biased technology. In the case of Facebook, that intersects with people getting very, very excited about the idea of, oh, this is a new thing, and oh, it's making so much money. And then they got kind of carried away with uh, the idea of self-regulation, and that's among other things, why we ended up in the mess we're in right now with all of the social networks. And do you think, you talk a lot about, going back to bias, you talk about techno-chauvism, and I think of it as, 
in the world of VCs, 40% of VCs are from two schools, Harvard and Stanford, and they're generally speaking white dudes. And I bet it's 80 or 90% of capital allocated is from that cohort of white guys from Stanford or Harvard. Uh, talk more about, uh, you talk about techno-chauvism. Uh, sorry, techno-chauvism? Uh, yeah, techno-chauvinism. What, excuse me, I said chauvinism. Jesus Christ, I can't even get the term right. Techno-chauvinism. Um, explain what you mean by that and how it's manifesting. Techno-chauvinism is the idea that technology or technological solutions are superior to others. Uh, and I would argue that really what we need to do is think about using the right tool for the task. Sometimes the right tool for the task is absolutely a computer. You know, you will pry my my smartphone out of my cold, dead hands, right? But mm-hmm. sometimes the right tool for the task is something simple like a book in the hands of a child sitting on its parent's lap. It's not a competition. One is not inherently better than the other. I. Uh, It's, again, about the right tool for the task. And so when people get carried away and they imagine, oh, yeah, if we use more technology, it's going to mean more social progress, that's when we start making really foolish decisions. So, for example, the case of using facial recognition in policing, uh, people thought, all right, we're going to use all these body-worn cameras and we're going to do real-time facial recognition on live streams of surveillance, and this is going to be better policing and it's going to make us safer. Well, it has not happened. Right? Mm-hmm. We can look at Joy Bolomini's work in Gender Shades. Uh, and one of the things that she and Timnit Gebru and Deb Raji found was that facial recognition is biased. Mm-hmm. It's better at recognizing light skin than dark skin. It's better <laughs> at recognizing men than women. And some people might say, oh, well, you know, if the problem is that facial recognition doesn't recognize women with dark skin, maybe we need more women with dark skin in the training data set that we use in order to make these models that that are powering the facial recognition systems. Uh, but Joy Bolinwini's work is so interesting because she says, no, that is not the solution. These policing systems, facial recognition and policing, is disproportionately weaponized against communities of color. Mm-hmm. And the abolitionist solution is let's not use these systems at all. Mm-hmm. And if the algorithm goes, okay, a certain community is more likely to be incarcerated, which they doesn't take into effect societal factors, but immediately makes a connection between incarceration and wrongdoing, and so is more likely to identify someone walking on the street of a certain profile uh, than someone else. Isn't that how we end up down this rabbit hole of systemic uh, racism and bias? Absolutely, yes. And that is the core pro- problem with uh, things like recidivism algorithms or you know any kind of automated system using used in policing. So for example, when you look at uh, drug use between white and black populations, say, there is roughly equal drug use among white people and black people. But when you look at arrest data for who gets arrested for drug crimes, it's something like 10 times more black people get arrested than white people for drug-related crimes. So if you're building an algorithm and you're feeding in the data on who got arrested, you're building a system that's going to say, oh, the black people should all go to jail. And that's obviously wrong and terrible and racist and not something that we want. We'll be right back 
Support for this show comes from NetSuite. If you own a business, money is often at the top of your mind. How to save it, how to spend it, how much you need, how much you don't need. But simple math will tell you that the less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have to keep the money you've earned. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is a leading cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash prof. netsuite.com slash prof. netsuite.com slash Slash prof. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So uh, you first came across uh, our radar. You said something I absolutely loved. You tweeted, the metaverse is a waste of time and money. <laughs> Can you it say really more? It really is. I, I love that. I've, I find, you know, uh, virtual reality, 3D printing, there's always these technologies, wearables, that was my favorite. And I feel like the next one is the metaverse. What did you mean by that? Well, here's my problem with the virtual reality. It makes me vomit, right? I mean, physically I'm, you get motion sickness. Yeah, I'm prone to motion sickness. Yeah, and people who are prone to motion sickness are more prone to VR sickness. right. And there's an awful lot of people in the world who are like this. So any technology that has vomiting as its uh, as its side effect, like I just think is is really misguided to expect that it's going to be a huge blockbuster. Uh, so the other thing about virtual reality is that people have been trying to build it for so, so long. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool for a little while, and then it quickly becomes pretty boring. You know, you think about Second Life. Second Life, when it came out, was supposed to be this radically new space, and everybody was going to have avatars in Second Life, and we're going to rebuild society in Second Life. And there are all these universities, right, who built, uh, you know, welcome welcome stations inside Second Life. I read a story a few years ago where the reporter went in and looked at Second Life and looked at the wreckage of the societies that had been built inside Second Life and looked at the sort of digital tumbleweeds. And it was really sad to just see the the shambles of this uh, of this society that had been touted as the next great thing. And mm-hmm. that is exactly what's going to happen with the metaverse. Yeah, you, you, it, it's interesting. Yeah, I love it when people kind of slay 
dragons. Everyone's such a so enamored of self-driving cars and uh, the metaverse. When it comes to cybersecurity, um, you believe that in addition to focusing on defense from these types of attacks, regulators should be concerned with the interplay between humans and technical systems. What did you mean by that? I think we need to focus more on the way that uh, technological systems are not just about the computer. They're not just mm-hmm. about the math. They're actually socio-technical systems. And so we need to think about uh, who are the people building these systems? Who are the people using these systems? What are the sources of the information uh, that we are using as data in order to train these systems? What are the values that we are uh, assuming are inherent in these systems. And let's question some of those values. Uh, Values don't stay static over time. So one of the things we're trying to do when we build a computer system is we're trying to build it and then set it and forget it, especially if it's automation that we're imagining is going to replace human beings, right? So on an assembly line, It's one thing to have a robot arm coming down and like putting the pin into the widget. Like that action doesn't change all that much, but society changes an awful lot. And so when we have algorithms that are are governing our social discourse, we really need that social discourse to be flexible, right? Like think about things that we talk about today that we didn't talk about 10 years ago. Well, the algorithm, if the algorithms were in charge, then, you know, it would be replicating the world the way it was the minute the algorithm was turned on. And it's not really interested in being flexible and forward thinking because it's just a tool. It's just an algorithm. It's just math. It has no feelings. It has no soul. It does not love. Yeah, I agree. It's not sentient, right? That's I've never, I've never bought there's a notion that at some point these things develop intention or, or, I, I don't know, a reason. Well, let's let's end with a couple of hopeful things. What what do you like about tech, or what do you think is the promise of technology, or what what encourages you about some of recent developments in tech? I get asked this question a lot. I I guess people think I'm a downer in terms of technology. I and one of the things that I used to say was I used to say that I could get behind uh, self driving tractors. Right. Like I'm not I'm not all for self-driving cars, but I used to think I could get behind self-driving tractors. Yeah. And I thought that until I met a farmer at a tech conference. Uh, and I said, Oh, self-driving tractors. And he said, Yeah, that sounds great. Except the thing about tractors is they get stuck in the mud. Like heavy equipment on farms gets stuck in the mud all the time. And then you have to get other equipment to like drag it out of the mud. And he was like, you know, I the self-driving tractor getting stuck in the mud, it just doesn't sound like it's any less work to me. So I was like, all right, I can't, I can't get enthusiastic about the self-driving tractors anymore. Um, so what am I enthusiastic about right now? I'm going to give you a really nerdy answer, which is I am enthusiastic about AI regulatory policy. I am enthusiastic that we have the right team in the White House now, and we have people who are focused on public interest technology. Uh And I feel like we are on the verge of having more uh, coherent tech policy coming down from a national level. 
in the U.S. at least. Uh, and that's what we need because the problem of Facebook or the problem of YouTube or the problem of any social network is not at a human level scale anymore. Like we are at the point where we need policy to solve this problem for everybody simultaneously. Roger McNamee has a great metaphor of uh, chemical companies. Mm-hmm. Right. So once chemical companies started generating negative externalities, uh, that's when we had regulation. And so right. if you were a chemical company and you were polluting the environment, you know, regulation said you have to clean it up and you have to, you know, pay reparations to the community. Like you have to clean up your mess and you have to be responsible for it. And he says that the tech companies are like chemical companies at this point. Uh, and I think that's a great metaphor. What if someone's interested, uh, a young person coming to NYU or just thinking about grad school or getting into the workforce is interested in the field of AI, what would be your advice to them in terms of the type of job, the type of education? Someone says, I'm interested in AI. What do I do next? Well, I think they should read my book. That's, um, of course, the first step, I think. Uh, I think the next step uh, is to look into public interest technology. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a new-ish field. It is just what it sounds like. It's about making technology in the public interest. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes it means uh, building better government technology. Uh, So, for example, making sure that things like the estate Unemployment websites don't crash when there's a global pandemic and people are out of work, right? And sometimes uh, public interest technology means building algorithms or interrogating the algorithms that are increasingly being used to make decisions on our behalf. And so that's something you do as a data journalist. The markup is doing some of the best uh, algorithmic accountability reporting that's out there right now. ProPublica is doing some amazing stuff too. Uh, The LA Times and the New York Times also have really great data journalism shops. So if you're a young person who's interested in AI, but also interested in making a difference in the world, I think that public interest technology is the place to be. And what do you make of these, uh, the Facebook whistleblower and some of the information coming out? I am so glad that we are having this moment right now. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think that lawmakers are getting more tech savvy, which is really great. I think that uh, they're starting to ask really probing questions, which are questions that, you know, needed to be asked a long time ago, but I'll, you know, I'll take it. Like, I am, I am excited about progress, however and whenever I can get it. However we get there. Data journalist Meredith Broussard is an associate professor at the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute of New York University, research director at the NYU Alliance for Public Interest Technology, and the author of Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World. Her academic research focuses on artificial intelligence and investigative reporting and ethical AI with a particular interest in using data analysis for social good. Uh, She joins us from her home in New York. Professor Broussard, uh, stay safe, and I'll see you uh, on campus. Scott, so great chatting with you. Thanks a lot.
Algebra of happiness. So today was chaos. I am doing a, or I agreed to appear in a Netflix documentary around GameStop. Uh, I'm trying to plan for Halloween. I'm trying on Halloween costumes. One of my kids has a soccer game and soccer practice and is doing a mock interview for school. Uh, my dog started throwing up and shittings literally started exploding from both ends. And when a Great Dane explodes from both ends, it's like Chernobyl times two. It was total chaos uh, in the house. People showing up, just cameras being set up. And I know that I'm trying to sound like I'm more important than I am. And I just got so angry and upset. And and uh, my trainer was here. If I sound very privileged, I am. And I'm at least I'm cognizant of it. And I got in such a bad mood and I was snapping at everybody. And now that things have calmed down, uh, what I recognize is that the chaos is absolutely the thing that I will miss most. When I first moved to New York, I decided um, to reboot my life. I had enough of the Bay Area. Uh, I had enough of technology of raising money. I'd been working my ass off. And I basically hit the reset button on my life. I resigned from the board of the company I was on. Actually, I got kicked off and I resigned from the other one. I got divorced. I decided I wanted to live a different life. And I moved to New York and I literally became an island. And that is, I didn't maintain my friendships from the Bay Area. I didn't maintain really my professional contacts. I started teaching at NYU and I created a one-man island. And I absolutely loved it, at least for a short time. And there was a, um, a selfishness and an indulgence that I really enjoyed. I'm an introvert. And I was, I think, 34 at the time. And what I recognized is that over time, uh, without the contact and the messiness of other people, it's almost as if you're not here. And that as time goes so fast, it goes too fast. And it creates this weird comfort with being alone. And being alone is one of the most dangerous things in the world, uh, especially among men. They don't live nearly as long. Men who live alone live literally a decade, have lifespans a decade shorter than uh, men who live with other people. It's not as bad for women because women are more social animals and do a better job of maintaining relationships. But I know now, slowly but surely, I decided that I wanted to have more relationships in my life. And I started investing in friends, started investing and mates decided to have kids, even though I thought for sure when I was 40, I would never have kids. I couldn't stand kids. Jesus Christ, I just didn't get it. And by the way, I, I get it if you don't get it. There's no way you can explain what it's like to have kids until you have them. It's like God reaches into your soul and turns on a, flips a switch and you're just sort of in love with this thing. Uh, but what I have found is that the messiness is a function of everything wonderful in my life. The messiness today is a function of the opportunities is a function of the people in my life that I love, of the animals in my life that I love. And uh, I need some perspective. And that is when I get stressed out. That's fine. It's fine to be stressed out. But I know, I know when I'm near the end that that's what I'm going to miss. I'm going to miss the chaos. I'm going to miss the stress. I'm going to miss all these different beings pulling at me. Because when we get towards the end and the kids are out of the house, uh, maybe I get too old to have a dog. I know I'm sounding very fatalist right now. I know I'm going to look back and I'm going to crave and, and, and really miss and wish for just a few more moments of chaos. Embrace the chaos. Our producers are Caroline Chagrin and Drew Burrows. Claire Miller is our assistant. 
Producer, if you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening to the Property Pod from the Vox Media Podcast Network. We will catch you next week on Monday and Thursday.